and um, uh, perhaps later you can tell people about your experience of going through the intensive and then how things, but not now, because we'll wait for the others. <laughs> so any additional learning from uh, other sessions, anything else coming in? Yeah, Vanessa. Um, yeah, I'm telling you, I've learned from every single person here. Um, hard work and worry. I heard that my whole life. If you want something bad enough, you work hard, you can get it. I am so grateful to release that. Yes. It's gone, gone, gone. Mm-hmm. I do not have to work hard for anything. It's given to me as I wish. I've forgotten that. Yeah. Hard work and worry. But my grandpa, who was a farmer, he used to say it all the time. Mm. Hard work and worry. Hard work and worry. That's what I'm doing. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was a farmer, and he did. He worked hard. Their lives were hard. Yeah. yeah. I don't want that life. Yeah. <laughs> There's no hairspray and blow dryer with that life. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm so excited to release that one. And I think that I have told that story because... You know, people would ask me about becoming a nurse, and I'd say, well, you know, when I was in nursing school, I worked full-time, I went to school full-time, I had two tiny babies, and, you know, it was just, if you want something badly enough, you just work hard to get it. And I was very proud of that. Yeah. That I had to work hard to get stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want that one anymore. <laughs> yeah, so what, why were you proud of it? Why, what, what was the pride my pride was, if you really wanted something, all you got to do is go for it. In my mind, my thinking is, you can have anything you want. I honestly believe I can have anything I want. But the belief that came with that was, you got to work hard for it. And I was very proud that to share that, no, no, you can do it too. You can do it. You just have to work at it. Mm-hmm. Where's the pride? Around the fact that you could have whatever you wanted. was what my crazy thinking was. <laughs> is it true for everyone? I believe that's true for everyone. Now I believe it's a false belief. Right. At the time, my belief was anyone could have what they wanted as long as they worked toward it. Right. Set goals and work for it. Mm-hmm. So I think of pride as specialness. Yes. So that's why I was looking for how did that make you special if anyone can do it? Well, well, I do believe anyone could do it, but I was special because I conquered it. You know what? I felt like it was overcoming adversity. There you it go. It was very special. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm really excited to release that one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you, because I actually was told that a lot by my older sister, who basically raised me. I was actually thinking about this morning about how I always feel like money slips through my fingers or like I just can't hold on to money. And like that's kind of an underlying belief I have too. But the thing is, is that I, I'm adverse to hard work. Like I just, I like my sleep time, I like my downtime. Like I like, like I don't have a constitution. Like. You know, I'm physically strong, like, I can do things, but I just, like, emotionally, like, I can't handle hard work, like, or, you know, that's just me too, but, like, 
it's not something that I'm like made for. Like emotionally, I can take a lot, but like, I'm just, it's not. Yeah. And so I judge that a lot myself that I, I can't have these things because I can't. Specialist, specialness is someone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I can have anything I want, but I, I can't work that hard or stay focused or anything like that. Yeah. Well, and there's special wrong, bad, not good enough, as well as special, uh, important, talented, beautiful. Two kinds of special. Ugly and beautiful. Bad and good. And very often, if people can't have one, they'll go for the other. As long as they're special. Like, oh, I can't have that because of my specialness. Yeah. Yeah, it's very common. Anybody have some of that? Anybody else have some of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we don't know what it is that's within us that's preventing us from having what we want. We just know that there's something. Like for me, it was just something is wrong with me. I could never figure out what it was, but there was so much evidence that something was really wrong with me. Really super wrong. And that it was unfixable. You know, especially if you can't locate it. How, how can you cure it if you can't locate it? Analyze it, remove it. You can't cure it. It's just, you have to cope with it. So for me, I just worked at hiding it. Pretending I was better than everyone. So I coped with it. Yeah. Yeah, I had a realization one time. I was telling my mother something I wanted to do, and she said, well, I'm sure if you work hard for it, you'll have it. Mm-hmm. You know, she said, but you are going to have to work hard for that. And right in that moment, I just thought, ugh. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to be like that. That does not appeal to me anymore. <laughs> I think it was so interesting for me because I thought about this and reflected on this last night and then hearing what you're saying because my experience was also in that in our session that at some point that voice inside me saying I've got to work harder here because it's at one point Sheila very clearly said oh great I got it thank you that brick has been removed. And she repeated it. I got it. And I heard her. I thought, great. And something kicked in in that moment. It, was, it wasn't... Like when, I was, when Lana was being my counselor, she said a couple times, I'm still not feeling we're getting down to the root cause. And it felt very insightful and tuned in. Which this was different. This was... I need, There may be more... I'm not sure if we've gotten to the root cause. I need to be clever enough. I mean, I wasn't exactly thinking it. I mean, I was, but not quite in the way I'm saying it now. Let's see. 
doing all the steps and I'm missing, I'm missing something. And Sheila had said to me, thanks, I got it. <laughs> and if I had had a more intuitive sense of I'm feeling it, but it wasn't necessarily that. And so it's so interesting because you're saying the work hard part was because I was listening, I could tune in it in you. It was very clear. And then I was starting to work hard. And finally, in the session, I could, it was maybe, I don't know, three quarters of the way through or what well, was probably done. <laughs> I could hear this voice saying, dear, she said, she got it. <laughs> it's almost like this gentle, very sweet voice. It's okay. You don't need, the words weren't, don't need to work harder, but that's essentially the, what it was. So thank you because you helped me work through that issue as I was. We're not working hard anymore. It's <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and if you, you know, I, I receive uh, a, much of my intuition, it's a feeling, it has no words, but the feeling has clear direction that I can then um, interpret into words. Mm -hmm. So that sounds also like your intuition is working, functioning that way. Mm -hmm. That it's a feeling, yeah. a sense. Yeah. And it's true, it's helpful. Yeah. yeah, so you can just say the sense I had is... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, as I find myself interpreting that feeling into words all the time mm -hmm. so I can communicate it yeah. mm -hmm. that's an area that I, I would like to do a little bit more work around I can feel it very strongly but I can't always put it into words mm -hmm. and you can ask the source of intuition to do that for you I keep forgetting that just ask <laughs> yeah. Ask for help. It's, <laughs> no. Yeah, we've lived so many lifetimes without asking, without tuning in. So it's a big shift. It's a really big shift. So we have to we get to practice lots and lots and lots. Yeah. So th that's such an important and valuable awareness, Vanessa, because that's that's how the ego is. The ego is like, oh, I've got to do something more here. And that's the whole thing that we're working to get the way out of the way, is that sense of I'm the one that does it. You know, instead of the I am is the one that does it. God does it. Just the thought that I, I need to earn my pay here. I need to, I need to be the one who, who de delivers it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, but it's it's so much better if the client can see it for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting to me because when I walked to the Buddha statue again today, the one taller Buddha, it's Jizo, is the name of it. Because I looked again because I was fascinated with it the other day, and that particular uh, Buddha, I guess you call it vowed not to attain Buddhahood until he had gotten everyone out of hell, basically. And when I was a little girl, I had a little Catholic friend, and she told me that if you prayed, you could get people out of purgatory. So a lot of times, we would sit there at recess, and we'd be really praying hard to get people out of purgatory, which is a very sweet, and I, I, the Jizo, I totally, like, something about it 
first time I saw it the other day, I totally identified with her. But there's a difference between, you know, I just want to really get help everyone and knowing. And so that intersection, I feel, is slowly giving way this week. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Switching me from trying so hard. Yeah. And maybe to be a good person, I don't know if you're special, right. but also I just want to help get everyone out of it. <laughs> so. Yeah, what a wonderful thing to aspire to demonstrate is that everyone can have ease and grace. Mm-hmm. How wonderful. Any other ahas or insights, Sue? Well, when my stuff is coming up, I my tendency is to withdraw. Mm-hmm. So go and hide mm-hmm. and try and figure it out myself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, my stuff is really coming up. <laughs> and fortunately, I I already had an appointment with Angel. Ah. And um, it was so quick. You know, he just, he just got it. He, he knew exactly what to say. And, um, and I worked with that, and, I, and now I know. I, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to isolate. Yeah. That's beautiful and powerful. Yeah, and since so many people do have that feeling of needing to isolate, um, what have you learned about why it's so appealing? And what made oh, you think? Because, because I have a lot of shame. Mm. You know, and, and um, that feeling is, is like, it confirms everything that I, all the false beliefs. Mm. And so I need to hide, especially when I was in ministry. Mm-hmm. And stuff came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another thing I learned, um, I think when I became a minister, and and unity's way of Identifying what spirit is to say I am the Christ, which was way too big a jump for me from I'm not good enough. And um, just saying I am as God created me, mm-hmm. just yeah, I can accept that. Yeah. brings me peace that I've never had before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the willingness to practice and engage in that Course in Miracles mind training 
It does all the work. It doesn't. And then we don't have to figure it out anymore. Our mind becomes healed. Yeah. That's, that's the beauty of it. Is that willingness is all that's required. Don't have to figure out why saying I am the Christ is so challenging or triggering or any of that. Just practice what's in the workbook and the course. And that, that doesn't mean that I have to be all things to all people. For sure not. You can't be. And I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're undoing these paradigms that are so shaming. You know, think of the the millennia of people thinking I have to be celibate and it's so hard for me you know or I have to be abstinent and it's so hard for me I have to take a vow of poverty and it's so hard for me you know and people then turning to things like self-flagellation and things like that in order to compensate or try and make amends for their um, impure thoughts. Whereas if you think of the more the Buddhist way, just allow, the th- don't attach to the thought. Just allow the thought to move on its way. Say, oh, I see you. I could contemplate on you, but I don't have to fear you. I don't have to. You have no power unless I think you and believe you. But the one who is self-punishing thinks the thought is true and is trying to compensate for it. And we see a lot of that. You know, I've talked with many ministers and listened to many ministers who feel ashamed. Many. It's really part of what I'd like to do is you know, it's not the most immediate call that I have, but to really create programs to help clear that out. I don't see enough, enough of that clearing out going on. I bet you have a whole lot of people in role. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because there isn't anything like that. I know. Well, maybe we can work on it together. The thing is, is people have to have the humility to be able to enroll and be able to participate in that healing conversation. And many are so ashamed that they can't tell anyone. They can't tell their practitioner, their their minister, you know. If they get beat up enough, <laughs> yeah, they're they're willing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's the direction that the ministry is moving in, is creating more and more classes that I'm not teaching also, or that I'm co-facilitating, because I, I would like to have more uh, teaching positions for people who can do this work, really. there's lots of people who'd like to do it. You know, if we build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thank you for your willingness not to carry that shame anymore. Yeah. I, th- I think that people who go into ministry and do that kind of work, they're um, whether they know it or not, there's such a strong intention to rid the world of all of that. And yet, there's so many ministers that are teaching shaming. And many don't even know it. You know? So, as if you're being inauthentic, then you're teaching that what's really going on with you is shameful. That's what drew me to you. You just popped up on my computer screen one day. That's <laughs> what so people tell me all the time. I don't know how I found you. You yeah. were just there. <laughs> and at the right time. Yeah. And I, I took some of the free classes. And I thought, wow, this is really great. This woman really is straight. Yeah, so healing. And it's so much easier for me. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anytime I say something that's not 100% accurate, I get this little thing. This little, little like, feeling that goes off and says, eh, is that 100% true? And I'm grateful for that because then I can either in that moment speak about it or I can work with it and I'm grateful for that because yeah. I really get that that the, the ministry we're doing is to show that we're already perfect we're already perfect even if we still have complaints now, I would have rejected that thought yeah because perfect means to me Something that's, when you say that, it's coming from the ego. But that's not where this is coming from. Yeah. It's really just being willing to recognize that everything that we label as imperfect is something that we're believing that's not true. So therefore, it's not real. It's an illusion. It's a delusion. And so our work is to let go of everything that's delusional and recognize the perfection that's there. So we can manifest all kinds of imperfection but still be perfect. Yeah. And it it takes a willingness to see it in your mind. It does seem like a mind game. My brother would argue with me for days about it. But I just don't discuss it with him. It said yes, you would. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is um, so much of what you just said. I identify with so much, and I think 
I feel so blessed right now that like I'm also someone that wants to isolate myself when I feel and I feel like I need to do it all by myself. And the divine manifested us to be together and we live right next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you don't have to be alone anymore. Guess what? <laughs> So the workshop is in here from 2 to 5. So we can go out on the deck. Which deck? Maybe one we took the sign down. Any other ahas or insights? I had one this morning that um, I've been doing some processing on forgiveness in my relationship with my husband. Um, Lana was very helpful to me the other day. I feel like I had a major release. And it was interesting because this necklace my husband gave me when I actually, um, I think it was the day of the practitioner graduation. Mm. And it was very, very sweet of him because it's not the kind of thing he would (laughs) wear. (laughs) Or, you know, it wouldn't be his style at all. And I was very moved at the time because he's very supportive of whatever I'm doing, even if he doesn't quite get it. He says, I read, I read physics, and so I understand spirituality through physics. Okay, so this morning I, I put it on, and I think in part it was because of healing and clearing after our conversation yesterday, because I, you know, I had this like, you know, back, such a back away energy for many years now, and so I, I just felt so much love and gratitude for that, that healing via your conversation and sharing. And also, I think it was the movie last night, because even though we may not be way back there, it's still, there was still, it's not as deep and connected as I have longed for. And I know the truth, same is true for him. And I spoke the other day a little bit about, like, you know, my sort of, Moral superiority, like, well, should I give him the book on Course in Miracles? Because <laughs> I'm safer if I'm the one that knows. And then I was in that instant when I was just feeling so grateful for his seeing me in that way and his love. I remember he also gave me this 
beautiful cross when I was a, a lay Eucharistic minister at an Episcopal church. So I would help with the hands-on healing and the Eucharist, and I love the Eucharist. It's very deeply meaningful to me. And he didn't grow I mean, he doesn't... Well, his grandfather was a Seventh-day Adventist minister, so that he grew up with that and in a Quaker school. So he had no kind of concept of communion, but he knew it was deeply meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And so he gave me that one year back in the day, and I think it said, Peace be with you, which is what you say at a point in that service. It's a very important, the, the passing of peace is very important. And I, real, I just realized, I, I mean, I was appreciative for it at the time, and that's a very thoughtful and nice gift. But I don't know, just went deep, deep into my heart. The, the fullness and the magnitude of that love that's in him for me, even though he may have many uh, blockages, and I mean that judgmentally, I mean, he would say the same thing, <laughs> to that excess of love in himself. And so I sent him a picture that, Sheila, you had sent me the pictures you took at the waterfall, so I sent him to him last night, because Sheila took a couple pictures of me. And he, so he texted me back, and he said last night, he said, you look so happy. So he could see, you know, he... He could see, I mean, you know, and you know, I had my visor on, so he was seeing some, he was feeling something else, because you, yeah. you can't exactly see me, and, well, you can't, he knows what I was like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I just feel so grateful for that, because it was, it felt clo- much closer to um, loving without any, on both our parts, loving without any conditions, or any hierarchy, or, you know, and I, been, I mean, other than, hi, how you doing? I'm cooking dinner, the dog's fine. So we've been connecting, or I've been connecting, and I guess him, in a deeper way. I'm very grateful for that. I just mm. feel that depth of love. Mm. Something that I have felt is just a greater and a deeper appreciation for Frank since I've been here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Feel it even more. Just, I was thinking this morning. I was writing a deep desire of my heart letter, and I was just sitting and thinking of all the wonderful gifts he has given me. He had told me last night my tree is blooming. For my birthday, I had a southern magnolia in the yard, and it didn't live. So I was really wanting another one. And you know, and I was saying we can buy some more, but it's going to be like three to five years before they bloom. You know. So for my birthday, I got a twelve foot. Southern magnolia tree <laughs> that's already blooming. Mm-hmm. Who does that? <laughs> Someone like, oh, who loves you, know? you. Yes. And so he was said telling me last night the tree was blooming again. And I was just like, you know, those little bitty things. I don't know that a twelve foot tree isn't little, but you know. <laughs> so I absolutely have got a greater appreciation for him for being here. I had a good one before, but for some reason, it just feels even deeper. Mm-hmm. So they're feeling it. They're feeling it. Mm-hmm. What we're doing here. For sure. Mm-hmm. They feel everything. Yeah, they mm-hmm. do. Yeah, because we're all one. And, and that's the thing. I, I honestly, it's amazing I'm so used to it now that I've forgotten the amazement, but 
um, when I really started to start to be more compassionate and caring and kind, one of the things that I, and this was back in my late 20s, so I'm 57 now, I, um, I started to work with a spiritual counselor, and it really, really helped me. And um, I, I discovered that I was really completely shut down and in denial. I really didn't have a clue about myself. I was really deceived. And um, I decided to, and I, I discovered that I had this great self-hatred. And I, because I thought I was better than everybody, so who would have thought I had self-hatred, you know, to me? It was illogical. And um, so I set the one goal to love myself. And I thought, you know, this is going to take decades. But it took about a year before I really felt like I loved myself, had love, had compassion for myself. And so um, in my family, we were very... um, snarky and sarcastic and blaming and guilting and um, you know I just remember at one point the perfect example of this would be like I, I said you know to my mom hey let's all go out for ice cream after dinner nobody wants to go for ice cream <laughs> yeah what a terrible idea God, you must just think I'm the worst kind of asshole for suggesting that. <laughs> just by her response, you know, like, nobody wants to do that. That's a terrible idea. You know, not a terrible idea, but it's just like, we're not going to do that. And I just realized that kind of reaction was happening all the time. And so then, you know, I would get tweaked and I would, you know, well, I like two can play at that game and I can win. You know? Like, you know, really. Like, I always thought, you know, I was just going for last man standing. I was always just going for that. You know? Because uh, I'll be the last one standing and then I'll kill myself. But I will be the victor. Because I'm the one that decided to, to, to you know, I'm the winner. I, I mean, really, that was how I thought about it. And so, um, uh, like in the movie last night, when he was saying, people don't change, you know, uh, in Hope Springs, when he was just like, you know, this is crazy, people don't change. You know, he changed. Obviously, he changed. And it's a movie, but still, people can change that dramatically, for sure. Because I certainly have changed. And... Um, so at one point I said to my family, my parents and my brother, uh, but particularly my parents, I said that I need you to speak to me kindly from now on at all times. And I'm learning to really speak to myself kindly, and I, that's what I'm asking of everyone in my life. So I'm not asking anything of you that I'm not asking of everyone in my life. But this is really going to be a requirement if you're going to stay in my life. And I said to him, I said, you don't, you know, you don't have to change overnight. I'm not, it's not like that. 
because I'm I'm not changing overnight. But this is my goal to have everybody in my life speaking kindly to me. I'm speaking kindly to them. And um, if you don't wish to participate in that, it may come that our relationship will become optional because we're all adults. And uh, and uh, and um, I said, and I hope you will be so grateful that you have raised me to be someone who will not tolerate people to speak unkindly to me, including myself. So it took a few years, for sure, um, of me changing my thoughts for them to really change. And I had to, in that time, many times say, you know, I, I, that doesn't feel very kind to me. You know, and for me to apologize many times because I would react and be snarky and then I'd have to apologize. You know, so I was constantly modeling and demonstrating. And um, it took a few years, but the dynamic in our family really changed. And uh, because my brother and I couldn't spend an hour together without mean comments, you know. And and without finding looking for something like, oh, I'm, you know, why'd you do it that way? You know, that kind of thing. I remember my sister-in-law, the first time she came and stayed overnight with us, like in Rhode Island, when my parents had a house there. And I don't know, whoever, it was probably me or my mom were the last one to find her in the, kitchen trying to make breakfast or something and, and you know, coming in and saying, well, here, here's what you want to do. You want to take the bread from here. You want to do... And she's like, I've already had three people tell me how to make toast. I think I got this. Jeez, <laughs> like, what is it with you people? You know, but we all know the best way to do everything. You know, and it's like the comment where I said to my brother, well, you know, when I was taking care of Mikey, and he was like, how dare you? You think you know better than me? And I'm like, no, I, I, I don't think that at all. Of course you do. You know, he's just so convinced because that's how he thinks that I think that way too. That's total projection, right? So, um, but that dynamic has really changed to the point where we can spend eight or nine days, all of us in the house together, and there are no unkind words. You know, it doesn't always happen, but I mean, we we've had that happen. So that's even for nine people who are adoring of each other, which I don't know that we're adoring. We really love each other. Adoring might be a little strong. You know, <laughs> I think we all adore the kids. You know, <laughs> um, but. Um, it's just such a beautiful testimony, you know, such a beautiful testimony. Yeah. So, um, but the, it's, it's love and compassion that does the work. It's really not having conversations with each other that does it. Conversations with each other can help. But one of the things that I've learned that's a very strong recommendation that I encourage you to share with your clients and be very, very mindful of is that if they want 
as they will often wish to do, if they wish to have a conversation with their loved one and tell them what they don't like and what bothers them, they have to remove the judgment before they have the conversation or the other person will just get triggered. Unless, and here's the only way around it that I know of, unless you just own the judgment right up front. So I have a lot of judgments about this. And uh, I know my judgments aren't true, and they're not helpful to me. But I'm just going to share that. And so let's see if we can practice that a little bit here. And if you can think of something like maybe you saying something to your husband or your son, you saying something to your husband or your son, you know, some example of, uh, you know, where you can... Go to them. You still have the judgment. You're still working on it. But you feel like, well, since I am willing to let the judgment go, I can own the judgment and tell them about it and not make it their fault. This is very quick to find fault, you know. Very, very quick for people to... They're looking for blame because it's that unconscious guilt that they just keep feeding. Like, Lana, what if you went to your husband and said, you know, what your judgments were about it and say, you know, and I... Those judgments aren't true. I know they're not true. and But they do come up. And sometimes if you feel me judging you, you could help me and point it out to me. You know? I think you received that well. Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. So if you were to go back to him about the dustpan now, what might you say to him? I guess I could say. You know, when I drove up from the grocery store and I saw the dustpan outside, you know, I had a judgment and a fear. I had a judgment about it being there, a fear that it was going to stay there, <laughs> or that I wouldn't be where I needed it when I, where I would like it to be uh, when I needed it. But I realized that's not true. And I'm, um, I don't have to have that judgment. I don't have to have a judgment. I could just, you know, I don't, I, I don't wish to make you wrong. I would just, you know, if you remember, please put the dustpan back. Yeah, beautiful. So you said you went to him about the dustpan, and you said something to him. Do you remember what you said to him? Not exactly, except it was probably something like, you know, this is the second dustpan I bought. I bought this one was to stay in here because you had already put one in the garage. And I was mad. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, it was an attack, mm-hmm. for sure. <coughs> and so, what if you went to him now and said, do you remember when I attacked you about the dustbin? I'd like to tell you what was going on. And you might say, this may sound crazy. What what, what might you say? The meaning that I made of that dustpan was that you didn't love me because you didn't put it back. Yeah. And if you could say a little bit more. Like, because he might go, what? (laughs) Yeah, help me out with that. Okay. So, um, how could it be that him not putting the dustpan back means he doesn't love you? Like, what are some other thoughts that you're thinking that get you to that conclusion? That if he did love me, he would put it back. Um, If he did love me, he would know that he would care. He would care about the little things that make me happy. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Does he know all the little things that make you happy? Probably not. Probably not. Mm-hmm. When he does know what the little things are, does he go out of his way? Got to think about that. Yeah. Because maybe one of the things you could do, too, is I would definitely do some writing on this to really flesh it out so that you can articulate it more. Um, And then you might make a list of little things that make you happy. Mm -hmm. Or even little things that you say, I've made the meaning of this with these things. You know, Like, who can think of some little things like around the house that you make the meaning of this this means they love me this means they don't love me <coughs> we have white carpet in the living room uh-huh. <coughs> and I asked him to take off his shoes when uh-huh. he comes in from work uh-huh. and uh, we had quite a to do about it <laughs> um, and, and I could go back to him and say you know Remember that argument we had about taking off your shoes? And he does that now. Right. Well, because you told him you'd beat him to death. Yeah. Didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... but um, he wants to make you happy, and he figured out that makes you really yeah. unhappy. Yeah. yeah. But you could go back to him now and, and say, thank you, I noticed that you take off your shoes. Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Give him the happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I just think there's not enough in the world of like taking his face in your hands and saying, I want to tell you. <laughs> I noticed you're doing everything you can to make me happy and it makes me so happy. Tell me say that I think. You start where you are. You start where you are, you know, but um, 
Yeah, like think of her, you know, she was so trepidatious just to touch mm-hmm. him, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And remember, like when she first went into the bedroom, that first before they went off to the counseling, mm-hmm. she had prepared herself for hopefully an e- evening of intimacy. And he's like, what's the matter? Well, I'm not feeling well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She took it personally, but it really wasn't personal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't say what was going on. There was such a huge example of getting to get that I noticed right off the front with that movie. Because he was like, when he was getting his jump, he was going to place like, I'm going, but... Just so you know, I'm going to my mother's for two weeks after this, and you have forfeited your right to complain. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm going to do this for you, but. Right. <laughs> it stuck with me. I'm going to remember that. What am I giving to get? I had someone once in a workshop, a relationship workshop, we were talking about that. And the person in the workshop said, all my relationships are giving to get. All. All of them. You know, it was a huge revelation. People don't realize that um, they don't believe they're worthy. I mean, they know it, but they don't realize what they're creating with that thought that they have to give to get. Mm -hmm. They act it out. You know, and I'm I'm big on seeing if you can make it fun. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and so to explain it without making him wrong, you know, and you can even begin with, um, you could begin with asking him if he'd watch that movie with you. Mm-hmm. We did see it years ago, but I, yeah, I could have a better conversation with him now. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And say, you know, I need to confess some things to you that I've withheld from you, and here's why I withheld them. You know, and and also to. I think that if we can be gentle with ourselves about it, I, I think it would be lovely if someone I loved came to me and said, here's a list of 50 little things that make me happy, you know, that you do, or things that I like to ask you to do, but I feel a little uncomfortable asking you. And I, or and some of these, these 10 things on the list are the things that I just thought you should know, you would already know, how could you not know? But I realized... You might not know. Because for sure he does not know that about the dustpan. He doesn't. He has How would he know that? But that's what we all do. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> we think this equals they don't love me or they do love me. So letting them off the hook for that, letting them in mm-hmm. on the conversation is, I mean, anyone who loves you would really rejoice at that. But remember, too, that, that like the Tommy Lee character, he, his core issue was he felt inadequate. Mm-hmm. 
And he always had, like the very fact that she would say yes to him. This marry him was like, how, how did that happen? You know? And he couldn't really accept that this wonderful woman really did love him. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the big issue in their marriage. And she didn't know that's what it was because her own insecurity thought it was about her being unworthy. So they were reflecting each other. And I mean, I've counseled people who've been together for years, and I've asked them, I say, I'll say, you know, right in the beginning, I'll say, so what are, what are the ground rules in your marriage? What have you identified as the ground rules? And they're like, oh, we never had a conversation like that. You know, so then they're trying to gently discuss them, like, well, I think we agree to this, don't we? (laughs) I think this is a deal breaker, isn't it? You know? But when I can do that kind of counseling with people before they get married, wow, what a difference it makes. Have all that discussed up front, real clarity. I think that you don't know what sometimes or the deal breakers for you. Right. Yeah, until you talk about them. Right. Yeah. That's right. You know the big things. But it's those little dustpan moments that <laughs> will bust up a marriage quick, I think. I yeah. have my own cell phone charger story. <laughs> so that's the du- it's the same as the dustpans. Right. You know. And I think it's those little things that people take so much to heart that we think are little tiny things, but people right. would be divorced quick over dustpans. Right. <laughs> yeah. May I, may I share a technique that I've yeah. kind of grown into is um, because I'm constantly dealing with my marriage is kind of my little poker in the fire. So, and I've shared it with my clients. So you see the dustpan, the thoughts are coming. And whether they do this or not, but to just say, ooh, what's coming up? Mm-hmm. Number one. So really just go right to self-connection. And then what would you like right now? Or what, so what's going on, okay, or whatever the question is. But then what is it you want right now? Because often if my husband's chilling in his chair and I'm like, oh, there's dishes and dinner, and he's not going to, like, know it somehow. He blocks it out. I don't know how. He thinks dinner arrives from the Martian <laughs> drones. Um, but I'll be in the kitchen and I'm like, oh, it's coming on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's like the dog going into red zone trigger where they're just like mm-hmm. and you're about to attack because you feel so I'll be like what is it you want Angela well, I want to feel supported I want his support you know I'm going into like victim, like I'm going mm-hmm. into this mm-hmm. uh, and then I went one day and sat with him and I'm like honey I'd really like to feel supported there's dishes and there's dinner to cook and then it's like, he didn't do anything. So he needs, like, apparently two days' notice, usually. <laughs> <laughs> so two days' notice, and it's like, oh, we have two minutes, you know. So he's not doing anything, and I, but I keep that conversation going, and I share with my clients to have them ask themselves, what would you like right now? What is it you want? Mm-hmm. I want him to put things back 
And then I'll say, and then I'll go, okay, can I give that to me first in some small way? How can I give what I would like to myself? Mm-hmm. And then how can I give it to him? Maybe that's part of the conversation about, okay, I can give him, I can support him to support me by telling him. You know, by having the conversation that you created. So it's just like, what can I give it to myself first? Because I already am in a sort of like a pant, like a self-soothing. Mm-hmm. On any level, is there something small I can do? And then how can I involve him? And so these are, this is just like, but I, but the thing, I had a woman with a marital, a marital client on Thursday. She's been married 20 years. And so... But it was about staying connected mm-hmm. and then having the inner dialogue. It just, mm-hmm. it's been like helpful to me because I'm yeah. like, what do I want right now? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes my mind is so in fury, I can't even hear mm-hmm. what I want anymore. Mm-hmm. I just want to attack him and kill the world and just blow them all up yeah. and mm-hmm. screw the dishes and screw this. Like, I don't know how to get support and I'm going to quit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That's something I'm developing. It's just coming naturally. Is have them ask, what would you like right now? Because sometimes the client doesn't even know. Mm-hmm. They just go into attack, and then they lose this opportunity to take responsibility for what they would like mm-hmm. and even try something, yeah. even if it's not perfect. Like I went in and sat down next to him. Who knows? You know, that's a gold medal from two years ago. Mm-hmm. That's like, he didn't do anything yet, but I was like, oh, I did my part. It feels something feels like it's working, it's starting to heal. Yeah. Well, that makes so much sense to me because I know. I mean, I've heard like years ago from Eckhart Tolle, only what you're not giving can be lacking in any situation. So when you said, you know, how can I support myself? How could I support him? I think that's all that you have to do, and then the other support will come. So getting clear on what it is you'd like, and then, I love that, I love that. And then give it to yourself, and then give it to him. I'm going to do that. Yeah. yeah, I love that. It's a great tool, because instead of going to my head, what do I want? To go yeah, here, I do okay, this one, because I'm like, I'm right here for you, Angela. How can I help you? Yeah, it's very gentle. It's like, yeah. And I'm like... okay and I would say like in the five years I've been with Jennifer that's my greatest learning is Mm. that I'm never going to not support me so I'm always safe Mm. even if it doesn't work out in the way I want it to look because what ended up happening I said oh if you could because he's like well what, what could I do (laughs) <laughs> I was like, well, you could start making the sauce. And then he goes, you know, I don't need to eat dinner. And I was like, <laughs> and then what I said was, well, I'm not going to judge that. Now I don't even have to cook dinner. I'm not going to make that a fight. That could be a fight. Like, oh, you're going to be so amateur. I said, and then my mind, I'm like, it's okay he doesn't. It's okay if he wants to choose that. But the whole time I'm like, what the, you know, what am, huh? <laughs> how to respond? Okay, that's okay. Don't judge him. He doesn't, 
He wants to shut down. Okay. That's easier if I really think about it. Yeah. I think I can use that. Because <laughs> it's then it's you're in the creativity of the spirit because you don't know exactly. You don't have a rule like you have to do this. But it's like, and then you're tuning in. Mm-hmm. And it's like... And I love that I'm safe because I'm always supported is distinctly different from sort of what you were saying. I'm safe because I'll with, just withdraw and take care of everything myself and not need anything, and I'll be safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, that's, that has been my historically go-to place. Which, of course, was fraught with resentment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like I'm safe because I built a wall all around right. me so no one can yeah. even get right. in. Right, right, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what you said about withdrawing is very true for me. I don't about get what? what you were saying about withdrawing mm-hmm. is very true for me. And I don't get those deep, deep hurt triggers very often. But when I do get triggered like that, the first thing, the very first thing that comes to my mind is... I don't need this shit. I'm getting my junk, and I'm out of here. And my very first instinct is to run. Yeah. Instead of stopping to say, well, what is it that you're wanting? And every time what I'm wanting is for him just to say, I love you, you're okay. See, and it's the the person who loves themselves can go to the place of what is it, what what would I like? Yeah. Yeah. And when you're counseling people, they will often talk at great length about what they don't want, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they often don't know what they do want, yeah. you know, what they would like. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. So it's very common in a counseling session to say, okay, so we've heard what you don't like. What would you like? And it's really important to remember that people who don't feel lovable and worthy may not be able to identify what they'd like. Mm-hmm. It may be way beyond their ability. Are there some tips of ways that you can drill that help them to drill down to what they may want? Yeah, so it's, that's why I work with the deep desire of the heart. With How would you like to feel? So, and then, well, have you felt that in the past? You know, how did that come about? And you can also say, um, um, do you have any sense of uh, how you could get to there? You know, how things would be if you were peaceful, how would it be? Uh, And cancel the thought about how to get there, because the how to get there then they just start going into it's not possible, it's not possible, it's not possible. But just how would things be if you were peaceful, how would things be? I love the deep desire of the heart tool. I'm so grateful that you gave that to us. I use it all the time. I used it this morning. And it's such an empowering feeling to just sit there and say, this is what I'd like, this is what I like. I don't ask for what I like. Mm -hmm. But man, I'm learning that one. Because it feels so good to just dream. Yeah. Vision casting is very powerful. Yes. And I have learned that one for sure. Mm-hmm. So to be able to, to give that to your clients, 
to me is a very good gift, mm-hmm. great gift. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't yeah. think about it in that way to say, "What would you like?" But it is exactly what would you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the client I worked with, she was, you know, I'd never worked with her, but we had a three-hour session. It just happened that way. And she was just admitting all these things. She would like she would go in the car and smoke cigarettes when there was tension in the house. She would just take off, smoke. And um, I said, "Well," and so she still, you know, she felt ashamed of that. But I said, "Even if you say, honey, what would you like?" and you hear a cigarette, <laughs> can you just consciously say, "Okay, that's okay." that's what you would like, let's go have a cigarette. So even to start in a place, but she was like, oh, I could do it consciously. <laughs> that's what she got out of it. Like, I could make a conscious choice. Whether it's smoke a cigarette, I was like, who cares? But you say, that's what you would like, and it's almost like you start there. Okay, you want a cigarette? Let's go. Take ten minutes. And so that was like, one of the get out of jail free moments, you know? Like, and then she's like, You know more about me than my husband. Like, all my darkness. <laughs> I was like, It's fine. And she said at the end, I'm sorry I put all this on you. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was like, That's not how I felt. And we were sitting across the table. I'm like, You just laid it all out on the table and we looked at it. Mm-hmm. So. Welcome back. Perfect. Let's take a break. Yeah. Bathroom break. Just a <laughs> More cushions. Yeah. I just don't know what I need. I didn't know what I needed. Right. I actually just think, I just went through a break on uh, several months ago. And actually, I'm a new master of women, Jennifer, and I was just like. I'm going to consciously, shamelessly play a lot of games. I would like to talk about is uh, we did talk about it some, but also money and prosperity uh, because for most s- spiritual counselors, it can be an issue that they have, and so, but it's a very common issue that people come for counseling with that. Um, they uh, are struggling financially. Very, very common. One of the things I see in Masterful Living is sometimes that's an issue that people have in the beginning and um, then they drop out of class because they can't afford the class. But what I don't see them doing is working the principles to actually transform that uh, consciousness of lack. Um, so the, the of course one of the main things that 
we can become aware of when we're experiencing lots of lack is what's our attention on? Is our attention on lack? Is our attention on limitation? And I've never had it not be that when someone really said, okay, I'm going to really start looking for the lack and limitation thoughts, that they, they didn't find them just all over the place. Just all over the place. And um, like I used to notice myself just uh, all, I, I had all kinds of issues with money. All kinds, and uh, my thoughts of lack and limitation were all the time, you know, and um, just affirming, affirming, affirming. So you laughed, Angel. Why did you laugh? Um, I have a lot of issues. Oh, that's probably that's not interesting. Um. But I also actually misheard what you said. Ah. Um, and I thought you said no one goes around thinking, oh, let me think of thoughts of lack of limitation. That's what I thought you said. Ah. And that's why I laughed because I thought okay. that's what you said. The, the thoughts of lack and limitation are, are really unconscious a lot of the time. Meaning that they they know they're thinking these thoughts, but they don't realize that they're thoughts of lack and limitation. And um, can anybody give an example of maybe some hidden thoughts of lack and limitation they've discovered? I'm like, okay, I can't pay full price. I can't afford that. I can't afford that. No. I, I can't afford this. I can't afford that. It's like, yeah, you got a credit card. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, and you'll pay it off. But the immediate response is, I can't, I can't do that. I can't pay that. I wouldn't pay that. I dare to ask for that much money. Those kind of things. Kind of fixed income. Mm-hmm. Is it often the case that you would like to have something that you believe you can't afford? That you actively would like it? Yeah? Can you give an example? Vacations. I like really elaborate ones. <laughs> Not just little bitty ones. <laughs> I would like a new car right now. <laughs> Real quick. Let's materialize that. Better mechanic. Or a better mechanic. Do you do you feel that if you don't go on a big fancy vacation that there's some real lack there? No, I don't really feel that, but I do think there are still some things that I believe are out of my reach. Mm. I, I, I can go along. I, I mean, I'm joking about the car, but a lot of times I will be riding down the road and I'll be looking at the Mercedes mm -hmm. and looking at the other cars and thinking, oh, 
wish I had one of those, but I don't really, really want it that bad because mm -hmm. I know they're expensive to keep up too. Mm -hmm. So that would be another thought of, mm -hmm. well, that's, that's lack too. Mm -hmm. I actually had a Mercedes one time. It was kind of funny. My ex-husband gave it to me because he was getting ready to just give it away. And I was like, you're giving it away? Hello, I'll take it. And I drove it for a while, and um, it was an old, older car, and we had two other cars. And so now I was paying insurance on three cars, and I kind of had to decide, you know, which one am I going to give up because we don't need them all, and I don't want to be spending insurance. So I drove for a while, and I was like, this is cool, I'm driving a Mercedes. So I got, I got the opportunity, and then I was like ready to give it up. Mm -hmm. Because it was the best choice as far as the, you know, it was the oldest mm -hmm. of the cars we had. Can I clarify that you just said? What? Your ex-husband okay. conversation. That, that, yeah, that right in itself is a little strange. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. No, we, we are on good terms, obviously. <laughs> I guess so. Jeez. No, no. We're, we're friends and everything it's way back in the past and you really kind of let it all let it all ride <laughs> yeah i i once had um i once did work with someone who really truly believed money was the root of all evil really believed it and um and and therefore never really had any you know, because they just didn't want to be corrupted. They feared it. Mm. I think that's a very common thing for spiritual students. That they do have a fear that money corrupts. And uh, so they, they can't hold on to it, even though they want it. And they will also pretend that they don't want it. It's not important to them. And that... The healthy view of money is money is a tool. So it's a tool that you can use in a lot of situations. Not everything, but you can use it in a lot of situations that can be helpful. So why wouldn't you want to have that tool if it's helpful? You're afraid that you'll be corrupted by it. Now, for sure, the our awakening, our healing process happens uh, that it, it, it happens in our taking time to be still and know we are God. And that, that being contemplative, being loving. Uh, and oftentimes people who have great wealth will fill their time because they can distract themselves. So they're unhappy instead of going out in the car and smoking a cigarette, you know, they'll book a luxury vacation, something like that. Um, you know, or have a massage or any number of things. Um, and there are many things that we do in life that can be very contemplative, like peeling the potatoes washing the dishes can be very contemplative, right? 
But if you don't have to do any of those things, what are you doing that's contemplative? Is your mind so occupied that you don't have time to be with yourself, to be with God? Of course, there are many wealthy people who do pursue um, spiritual awakening, you know, and they use their time and money towards that end and can do that beautifully, too. Um, there's some place in the Bible where it says it's easier for, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And, uh, and that's what it's about. It's about money can provide so many distractions that you become, or be, it, it, you can also purchase so many comforts that you can become content with the comforts. So that's why Buddha came to demonstrate these two extremes and to, find, and to tell us the middle way is the way of awakening. So the two extremes were Buddha was the prince growing up in the courtyard in the, in the kingdom and had everything he wanted, everything. And he went outside of the um, castle walls, um, the kingdom walls to discover what was going on outside there found that people had lack and limitation. He became very interested in that. But he also followed the pursuit of pleasure to the nth degree. And he realized that it wasn't fulfilling. So then he went the other way, with total deprivation to the point of um, where he was hanging out with like guys who just learned to hold their arms up in the air till they froze like that. All kinds of crazy stuff that people were doing at that time in order to um, attain enlightenment. And so he was eating one gra grain of rice per day. It was, it was total deprivation. And he sat under the Bodhi tree and, and did his Vipassana meditation and had, had the full realization of his true nature. He attained enlightenment. And then he taught the middle way after that realizing that both extremes are egotistical. So the way of not making things good or bad, right or wrong, but really non-attachment. But in being able to enjoy everything without attachment, that's the way, the path of awakening. And realizing that being a householder and being in a relationship, that's really going to speed things along. That... Um, being a monk, being in isolation is not the fastest path. But it's still a path to explore, but it's not the fastest path. So, um, a lot of spiritual students, you'll see them kind of, there's a ping-ponging, you know, or uh, the um, pendulum swinging. So we're in a period now where uh, and we have been for many years, where the teachings of prosperity are spiritual teachings. And uh, just like before that, there was a period 
for many years where people were learning about healing, right? That to be able to heal the body, you could do it with your mind and you could uh, do it through cultivating a spiritual life. You could learn to heal your body that way. And um, that's what one of the things that Phineas Quimby and Mary Baker Eddy and Ernest mm-hmm. Holmes and those people taught. And, um, and then sort of more in the 60s, people started to teach that this is how you can attain abundance and prosperity. You can manifest everything you want through the correct use of your mind, your attention, your words, and, and doing this spiritual work. Right, and then, but then there was a faction of people that started to think that the more prosperous you were, the more spiritually awake you were. And of course, we all know that that's not true, but um, because it, you know, it really is focusing your attention. If you focus your attention on money and that you deserve to have money, you are worthy of money, you would like to have money and you're going to work to have money, you will have money. Why wouldn't you? Of course you would. But if you think, if you make your, the money the false idol, the money won't make you happy, but you'll have it. So I've seen clients that are multimillionaires and they come to me because they're, they have two main things going on. They are not happy and they don't have enough money. <laughs> For real. The millionaires I've worked with, the multimillionaires, those two things, I'm not happy and I don't have enough money. And I do think if I had more money, I would be happier. And I would say to them, I have so little money but I do feel happy and they're like I know how do you do that <laughs> how can you you don't have a retirement fund you don't have all these things how can you be happy so, so is that the gratitude for what they have or is it just well I would say the, the millionaires I've worked with they had gratitude for what they had but they didn't have enough. And they thought that having more would be the thing that tipped the scale so they could be happy. And some of them even knew, like, this amount of money is the money that I need to be happy. They had a dollar amount. They had a dollar amount. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, we talk about it, and I'd say, why, how will that much money make you happy? Because then I'll be able to do the things I want to do. And doing the things I want to do will make me happy. And so it's not its not difficult to break it down. So it's like, does everybody who has that much money have happiness? Does everybody who does those things you'd like to be able to do have happiness? Have you ever had the experience of thinking, that will make me happy and you got it and it didn't make you happy? Why do you think this is different? You're just helping people to see that they've made this equation in their mind. But happiness only comes from one thing. It only comes from being in the flow of love. It does not come from any other thing. And we're in the flow of love in our heart-mind congruency. 
So, um, uh, in Masterful Living, we spend uh, a fair amount of time on how the mind is communicating and finding freedom, too. It's one of the basic principles. But not everybody here has done that work. like there's separation between the heart and mind. But that's because we separate the intellect and the heart. But the intellect really is a function of the ego. It's a function of the personality. So I, I like to say heart-mind. You know, and it, it's really here. It's really here. Um, and our, our brain doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. Yeah, but sometimes people think that it does. But in, in our life, uh, when we are heart-mind congruent, then things fall in line and we're able to quickly manifest. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, incongruency of the heart-mind is easy to demonstrate. It's when I say I would like to be loving, I'd like to be compassionate, and I'd like to have peace. But then when something happens that I don't like, I become angry and irritated and judgmental. Then my heart's desire to be at peace and to be loving and harmonious is not the priority. If I'm choosing to be judgmental and attacking, where, where is my commitment to being loving and compassionate and harmonious? gone, right? So, what happens is in the intellect, we think I'd like to be loving, compassionate, and harmonious. But if we're irritated and judgmental, then what it really means is in our heart, we have prioritized our opinions and judgments. In our heart, we've prioritized our, heart, our judgments and opinions, our, our beliefs, are bringing us these judgments and opinions, and we're prioritizing them. That's why we're upset. How are we prioritizing them? It's just that we believe them so strongly, and our commitment to peace and harmony, to being loving, is not that strong. Right? Because haven't we all had experiences where your commitment to being peaceful and loving and harmonious was unshakable in that moment? That no matter what somebody else was doing, how, how they were behaving, what was going on, you were able to keep your peace. Have you ever had that experience? Mm -hmm. Right? That, that, you know, a lot of parents experience it when their children are acting out in ways that could be very frustrating and irritating, but you still remain patient and kind and loving. 
So then your priority is clearly to be patient, kind, and loving. No matter what your children are doing to push your buttons, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, whatever they're, you know, they're, just whatever's going on. They're screaming, they're yelling, they're throwing a tantrum. You are not taking it personally. You are not feeling threatened because you have a commitment to be a good parent and to be loving and compassionate and kind. But when you meet somebody, you know, who's in the next car, right, and they're throwing a tantrum, then where's your commitment to be <coughs> and kind and loving and harmonious and compassionate, right? Well, I don't have a commitment with the strangers. I don't have a commitment with people who are in their cars. You know, maybe if I met them at church, <laughs> but not if they're just in their car. Not in traffic. Yeah. Not if they're taking my parking space. Right. right. So it's looking at what are you holding in your heart and, and what is, are you congruent with your heart's desires? Because as soon as those thoughts, I'm not good enough, they're not good enough, move into now we're energizing it with our heart space, that's when we start to get upset, really. We start to believe it, we're investing in it. It's our choice to invest in it. Because we can all have thoughts in our mind that we think uh, that are discordant thoughts, but if we don't really believe them and invest in them, we just move right on down the road, right? Have we built the discipline to see, oh, there's that thought of unworthiness. But it doesn't upset us now. It's just, oh, there's that thought coming up again, right? So when that's happening, it's just passing through the like a cloud in the mind, and we haven't really pulled it down into the heart and energized it. I mean, you know, in a very real sense, it, it's this is not scientific, you know. It's energetic, it's emotional. Uh, but I think that's, that's how I feel about it, is that if I'm holding in my heart a grievance, then I'm going to be upset. If the grievance is just a fleeting thought in my mind or passing through my mind, I haven't really invested in it or reinvested in it. It's just something, oh, there it is, coming up for healing. But as soon as there starts to be emotion, and then there's real attachment to it, and I can see that there's real healing opportunity. So this is the heart-mind congruency or incongruency that we're looking at, and we're cultivating the congruency that if I say I'd like to be a loving, peaceful, harmonious presence in my life all the time, and I have a commitment to that, then if I start to feel unharmonious, where's my commitment? It's like in the meditation, if I say, where's your attention? Where's your attention? And so, now, let's say that this is the direction of love, okay? From your perspective, this way, really, for most people, to the right is the future, to the left is the past, okay? So I'm saying, I would like to make this commitment to love and be a loving presence. And then my brother uh, says something from the past, some unhealed wound, 
and I go storming back over this way and trying to justify and trying to change people's minds or just falling on the floor hurt and upset, my where I truly wish to be, I've forgotten about that. Temporarily, I've been pulled off course, right? But really, no one can pull me off course unless I allow it. I have to say, I'm agreeing with that. I'm interested in that. I'm investing in that. And these unhealed beliefs are coming up all the time for healing. So that's why I teach about the divine alarm clock, right? So... The divine alarm clock is your very being. Right? And it goes off, uh, you know, ringing bells, ringing, when you're believing something that's not true. And that's how we're designed. If you think of yourself as like a crystal light being, and you start to, remember how right in the beginning we were talking about, you can't make the light impure. So if you grab onto some thought, I'm not good enough, something's wrong with me, they're bad, uh, something bad is happening, and you hold on to that thought as a crystal light being, it's going to start to rock your beingness. You're going to feel uncomfortable. You're, and that's a divine alarm clock going off every time. And it, well, all it's really telling you is you're not heart, mind, can go up right now. For love. For love. And it's, it's so interesting to me because I've been teaching this for a long time. And whenever I thought of this next part, which is we see people in the world who are heart, mind, congruent for their own needs and wants. And that's their priority. And I always thought of Donald Trump for that. <laughs> and sometimes I would say, like Donald Trump. You know? You think of him on that show, The Apprentice. He doesn't, I mean, I never watched that show, but he just never struck me as someone who was really interested in having everybody feel good and, and, uh, and being harmonious. Yeah, so, but he, he, in many ways, he's a great um, poster child for if you know what you want, and you let yourself want it, and you would let yourself have it, and you're willing to do whatever you feel called to do to get it, then you will get it. Mm. If you don't see any the reason why you can't have it, and you're willing to say, I'd like it, I want it, I'm going to get it, I need it, I'm going to be focused on it, you will manifest it. The only thing is, is it doesn't mean you'll be happy, because it's all false idolatry. It's you've made these things your God. And what that really means, if false idolatry is. So, um, well, who can say what it is? When we have, when we idolize someone or something, right? We're making it of a, like a God in our world. Where's the false idol or an idol? We are idolizing someone or something. So when we put them in that position of God, we're really saying, they're my refuge. 
they're going to make me happy. Right? That's the essence of the special relationship. As this person completes me. I'm incomplete, but with them, I feel complete. Because they complete me. They are my refuge. They are my port in the storm. But this is where the teaching about having no other gods above me. When we make something other than God the source of our abundance, the source of our happiness, the source of our healing, the source of anything, it's false idolatry. And it will lead to our realization that we have placed our faith in something other than God in our own opinions, our own judgments, our own perceptions, and that our needs and wants can be met by things in this world. And every time we stray into that, we will create suffering for ourselves. We're choosing to learn through suffering. We're choosing to learn through lack instead of through having. So when it comes to counseling people on prosperity and abundance, um, what happens is when people are heart, mind, incongruent, you know, um, they won't be able to have what they'd like. So if we use, let's say, Donald Trump as an example, happiness wasn't really in his equation. Maybe he thought, if I have these things, I'll be happy. But it just didn't seem like it was a priority to him. Not my happiness. Because people who are actually pursuing happiness don't go about things the way he goes about them. Which is fine. Many people don't have happiness as a goal. They want to have their stuff. They think their stuff is their protector. And that's what they're going for. So, again, you can, if you decide what you want and you don't feel there's any obstacle that you can't overcome and you're willing to have it and receive it, you can manifest whole, you know, stadium fulls of things. Stadiums full of things. With that consciousness. And people do it all the time. But if you would like to have love and have happiness and harmony and true prosperity and abundance... You will align with love and stay aligned with love. And that's been the method that I've chosen. So, and I went from really being concerned all the time about how to pay my bills and feeling like I was just drowning in credit card debt. You know, so intense. And I, I, I don't have any credit card debt anymore. And... Uh, there are many times, or have been many times, where I thought, I don't know how this will ever be paid for, but God's going to provide something because I'm doing what I feel called to do. And, um, and I'm not someone who has um, really, I, I'm not a hoarder, so I'm not hoarding things for my use later like that. Um, and so I, and there, there I had a, a time last year where 
I felt really called, I had been feeling it for quite some time, to go back to Germany and teach. And I did, and I, uh, I put out a call for anyone who would invite me. And this one woman invited me to come to this little tiny town, little tiny town in Germany. And she had never done anything like this. She was a homeopath. And um, she didn't have a big network to tell people and stuff, but she was really willing to do everything she could. And, um, and I just, I, I knew I was called to go, so I went. And um, I, the first workshop had her and one other person. And then that was like a Friday night, and then all day Saturday there were maybe four or five people there, and um, and they they everybody left. The person who came on Friday night came back for Saturday, and I think we also did work on Sunday. I can't even remember now. I think we did, um, and um, and the people came back on Sunday, and um, it was a very small group, and from a very small group. Um, $600 was raised, or 600 euros, which ought to be shocking that that much money came out of that small group of people. And I know some people put in a lot more than others. Um, and, but I have to say, like on the Saturday night, I think it was, I was, or maybe, I don't remember the dates now, but let's, let's, I was, thinking, have I done the right thing? I was just being contemplative. I wasn't being judgmental, but just, have I done the right thing to invest so much of my energy here for such a small group of people? Because I, I, I have to be very prudent with the use of my energy because of all that there is for me to, to do. But I have felt it, but I was just double-checking. This, is this really been the wisest thing? And then I got an email from Tina, my assistant, um, that we got a donation for $15,000. I've just arrived. And so, of course, I knew, yes, I had done the right thing. And the woman who worked so hard to put that workshop on, I gave her all the $600. And she was really like, she was eating potatoes all winter long. You know, she really, she did not have money. And uh, she took in all these stray animals and did all these people, her neighbors would bring her cheese and stuff to make sure she didn't starve. But she was willing to be of service. And she loved the work that we did. Everybody did. Everybody who was there was really affected by it. Yeah. So, if you're trying to figure everything out yourself, and you're trying to do it intellectually, you will stumble and fall so many times, so often. But when you're really training yourself to listen to your heart, and to be in that congruency, you, miracles will unfold. Miracles will unfold. And they do all the time, you know? So I constantly depend on the miraculous. I constantly, and it's, that's my faith. 
And I know a lot of people look at me like, oh, Jesus. You know? And some of my friends look at me now after many years of watching me. They're like, wow, you know, when you started out, I just thought, oh, are you ever going to do that? <laughs> but that's the thing is, you know, I myself can do nothing except I can listen and be obedient. I, I, you know, if there's just one thing you took away from this whole training is that if you sit in that chair with someone, all you have to do is sit there open-hearted and present. Spirit will do everything. The minute you think that you have to do something, it's time to pray for yourself every time. And so through the practice of this, this is how you learn trust and faith. You know, trust, 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 trust. That's how you uncover what I I believe our faith is pre-installed. We've just got all this garbage on top of it. And every time we trust, we're, we're letting go of some of that distrust. We're coming back to uncovering that faith. Because to me, what is faith but the knowing that you are one with God and that in God all things are possible and that it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom has already been pre-installed and, and the infinite love of God, all the angels, the company of heaven, doing everything they can do to help you to realize that you, you to be like the prodigal son and to come home. Just come home. Stop wandering and come home. Alright? So there's the beautiful um, parable that Jesus told of the day laborers. Right? So uh, this uh, uh, farmer, he's got crops to be picked. He needs day laborers. And so he puts out the word in the town, you know, come and uh, work and help help bring in the bounty from the field. And so people are coming all day long. People come in the morning, all through the morning and the afternoon. And even people are arriving late in the afternoon. And at the end of the day, the landowner pays everyone the same. And the people who were there early in the morning are angry. Like, how can you, they just arrived. How can you give them, I've been laboring all day. And um, Jesus' story is about the reward is not for the work that you're doing. It's for having answered the call and come in the first place. And whenever you come, you get the full load of God. You know, whenever you come home to God, you will get the full load. And those who come early will not get more. Because the thing is this, all are worthy of the same. All are worthy of the same. So if we sit with that intention, we will be refined. Right? It's our willingness. So we have to get out of the idea that we're giving to get. Instead, we're supplied. We're supplied. So we're, we're sitting with the, the person to, be, to receive the supply. Not to give from the client, but to receive from God. And so, like, the, you know, I, that's why I tell stories about, you know, I did this session for somebody for $5 or $2. 
but then this came that way, and this came that way. You, you just, you can't outgive God, you know? So you don't, if you're giving to get, you're, you're, you're in lack of limitation. You're trying to control the flow, which means you're just going to impede it. So the way to really open up your life is to be in that heart-mind congruency for love. So, yes, you can manifest and demonstrate all kinds of things when you're heart-mind congruent for having stuff. But if you'd like to be obsessed, if you'd like to be happy, then you have to be heart-mind congruent for love. And just every time there's a disturbance, it's your, your true nature won't let you go off course without noticing it. And then it's your choice. Do you want to stay off course? Do you want to come back to course? What would you like? Do you want to let go of that thought forever? Do you want to manage and cope with it? What would you like? It's your adventure. You can have whatever you like. But that's the thing. is That's why we can never be completely lost. It's because that, no matter what, that divine alarm clock is going off. Even somebody who's a drug addict, who has abused their body, they can still feel the divine alarm clock going off. So, when we're doing spiritual counseling, we're not just helping people solve their problems. We have to hold in mind that a greater awakening is what we're participating in. It's just—it's not enough for people to just be temporarily happy or to solve their problems with their in-laws or their boss or the cancer. It's not enough. We're going for the awakening. And I really... For me personally, I feel called that we're ushering in the golden age of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. You know, we're at the front of that activity, and it's happening. It will be happening, and we can speed it up. We can help other people to recognize it, and then they'll help other people. And that can seem like it, you know, who am I to say? I am the Christ, right? Who am I to be ushering in the golden age of enlightenment? But it really is that, who am I not? Why would I think I'm not worthy of that call? And could those thoughts ever be true? Someone I listened to had said, we were all chosen to reincarnate during this time to help bring forth life. Yeah, that's why we're here right now. Whether we choose to do it or not is the question. Yeah, this is the time that we've been waiting for, you know, since we all chose separation. We're, you know, coming full circle. I heard Regina Don Akers describe it one time. I've heard other people describe it this way, too. If you think about that, there was this great exhalation, you know, and now there's this great inhalation. Mm. As we're coming back home to God in our hearts and minds. And for me, as a Course in Miracles student, 
I was not raised as a Christian, though I had Christian grandparents. I was, my parents weren't Christian. And I just, I really claim the Ascended Masters, Jesus, um, and others as my teachers. And I really work with the angels. And I have found great benefit in that. And so even if you just just work with Jesus, you know, or just work with Mary or something like that, it doesn't really matter because they're all representing the same field, really. Um, but really rely upon a higher wisdom than yours. You know, Jesus' teachings are so full of, you know, let me do it. Let me show you the way. You will be provided for. Do not doubt me, you know. And um, it's like when I teach about prayer and master living, uh, and I do the story about the woman who keeps taking it off the altar, you know. She puts the prayer on the altar, and then she keeps taking it off, thinking that, um, she, you know, it's not happening fast enough, and she's not sure if God's really paying attention. So... We have experiences where we have to hold and have faith until the last minute so that we will know implicitly that we are cared for. The other thing is, is that when our hearts and mind are incongruent, to me it feels like if you're driving in a car, right? You're driving in a car and um, you've got your foot on the gas, hands on the wheel, and you're looking ahead where you're going. And you've got gas in the car, cars working, you're in drive, you're going. You're going to get there. But if you are looking in the rear view mirror, and your car is headed this way, your car is headed to the future, let's say, but you keep looking in the rear view mirror and you're trying to figure out how to drive forward by looking in the rear view mirror, how fast are you going to drive? Are you going to feel comfortable moving forward at all? Are you going to just keep your foot on the brake? And that's the thing is, most of us are just reviewing the past all the time, re-experiencing the past. Every time the divine alarm clock goes off, you're re-experiencing the past. So if you're obsessed with the past and fearful of recreating the past, you are trying to drive your car looking in the rear view mirror. You will, you, you will not feel comfortable moving ahead because you can't see where you're going. But the way God works is God will show you where you're going for the next few hours. You know? And you have to learn to be fine with that. This, I mean, I have plans, you know, through a lot of next year. But I don't have an attachment to it. So if things changed, I'd be okay with that. Does this bring up any thoughts or questions for you? You can answer some of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Good. 
Going back to money, I'll share with you some other thoughts about money. Um, I, in, in doing my own inner work, I had a wonderful realization at one point that a big part of why I had such fear about money was when I was a little girl, maybe maybe 11 years old, um, my family went to visit my grandmother in Florida. We were driving from Rhode Island. It's a 22-hour drive. And it was Christmas time, and uh, my parents were very stressed. You, you know how it is. You're, you're working right up to the last minute. You're taking vacation. You get everything packed for this long trip and the driving and trying to shove everything in the car. You know, and so they got all your Christmas presents and everything in that car. You know, and so um, uh, we uh, had been on the road for the whole long, long day because we would try to only stop one night. Uh, yeah, my parents would take turns driving and stuff like that. My father would be smoking cigars, chewing on cigars, <laughs> eating coffee beans, and trying to stay awake and stuff like that. And um, the first night we, um, or whichever night it was, uh, it was raining, torrential rain, and we couldn't find a place to stay. And they didn't have a reservation. And um, everything, no vacancy, no vacancy. So it's getting to be later and later and later and later, you know. And, um, we finally found a place, and we got in there, and we found that it wasn't quite clean. There were cigarette burns in the sheets and things like this. And my father got furious. And now I can see that he was furious because he was trying to provide the best for his family. He didn't have much money. This place cost him more money than he intended to spend, and it was less nice than what he wanted to provide for us. And so those feelings, that feeling that he was failing us, caused this great fear in him, which caused this great rage, right? And so he literally, he was, he, he was standing on a chair, dismantling the light fixture, and then putting it back together in a crazy way, as a way of, you know, attacking the hotel people. And then he said he was going to take apart the toilet before he left in the morning. <laughs> he said what? He was going to take apart the toilet before he left in the morning so that they would have to call a plumber. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work. That's a lot of stress. He was, he was, and I, I was afraid of how angry he was. Yeah. It's frightened me, you know, and it frightened me that my mother couldn't calm him down. You know, she, she definitely knew better than to get in his way. Just let him play it out until he calmed down, you know. And he was all probably all hopped up on coffee beans and cigars and stuff like that. <laughs> and um, so I just remember that was frightening. And I'd seen many instances in my family where my 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 uh, my parents didn't have enough money for something, and it caused stress because um, they just didn't have a lot of money. When I was uh, like six years old, my parents got me a bike from a garage sale, it was too big for me, I couldn't ride it, you know, I couldn't sit on the seat, and I had to learn to ride that bike, I couldn't learn how to ride that bike, and my dad's trying to, you know, run alongside with me, and, and it's just not working, you know, and, and, and they finally had to find some other kind of bike for me, but then they had spent all that money on that bike, thinking that, you know, I'd be able to grow into it, 
was too big for me. It was just, I was a little girl, you know. And so there were always things like that happening, right, because of the fear of money. And uh, my, my mother would fight with her mother because her mother would want to pay for something, and my mother would say, no, you can't pay for that. She didn't want to take any money from me. You know, it was just like all that stuff around money. And um, so in through my own therapeutic process, working with a practitioner and doing um, just really deep inner work, I realized that in that moment, in that motel room, I made a decision. I am never going to care about money. Because mm-hmm. money makes the people you love so crazy that they will hurt you. And they will lose track of what's happening. And they will frighten you and hurt you. And that's not worth caring about money for, you know. Because here's my father. So someone who would, uh, would have done anything to defend me against anybody else terrorizing me. But now he was terrorizing me. Couldn't even see it. Didn't want to see it. Couldn't care to see it. My mother was frightened. And she couldn't do anything. And I just saw, this is what money does to people. This is what caring about money does to people. Not money itself, but this is what caring about money does to people. It makes you hurt the ones you love. I made that decision right there. So I said, I can never care about money. I just can't do it. So once I uncovered that, then I went, oh, okay, there's the false belief. But I was determined there's something in my mind that is not correct, that's, that's, that's keeping me constantly in debt, constantly not having enough, constantly experiencing lack of limitation. So that was very helpful to me in changing my mind. And, I, the, and the second thing was really saying, realizing that you can receive and receive and receive and never owe anyone. Because my family had strings attached to everything. Well, I have to clean the garage. Why aren't you going to help me do this? Like, well, you didn't say that. You didn't tell me that that was a deal, that you, we were making a deal. Why do I have to do something I don't want to do? You, you didn't even tell me that. <laughs> you know? So everything was led to make a deal. And I, I, I decided so it's better for me to do everything myself. Not owe anyone anything for any reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I made the determination that I had to do it myself. It was better to do it myself. So I had to retrain my mind to let help in. You know? And that would be a really good one to sit and work on exercise around. What are the false beliefs around money? Yeah, and this year in year one, we're going to put some real attention on that. And what triggers are from childhood that make you think that? That is awesome. Because you really could relate it to anything. Yeah, being receptive is, is being receptive to everything. Because God is the great giver, giving to us infinitely. That's why I say, everything I give, I give to God. Everything I receive, I receive from God. And it's always perfect. It can't get out of balance because God's in charge of it. It's just my job to give where I'm instructed to give and to receive where I'm being given to. 
You know, and it took me a while, because when you're a minister, people want to give to you. You know, like you, you gave me a coffee mug. That's great. I love that coffee mug. I'm happy to enjoy it. But if I, if I wasn't balanced, I might feel guilty, like, oh, now I have to give Sheila something. And I used to feel that all the time, like, oh, now I have to give them something. I didn't get it with the intent. Of course not. Get something. <laughs> of course not. Like, but this is how I'm going to make Jennifer give me something. <laughs> <laughs> but as I talk about in class sometimes, people don't even feel comfortable receiving a compliment. Mm. A lot of times people will be like, oh, this whole thing, you know? <laughs> There's just so many kinds of things that if you're really paying attention, then it just you can just get them all out of your heart, your mind, your life, your house. So, um, true prosperity is really being in the flow of love. It's well-being. It's a good night's sleep. It's a it's a you know functioning bowels. It's it's all these things you know. It really is. That's what true prosperity is. And abundance is having plenty. But if you're storing it up and storing it up and storing it up, that's not, it's not meant, we're not meant to live that way. It's constipation. That is constipation. I was playing uh, Words with Friends, which is a Scrabble game. On my phone, with uh, I play it with my cousin, and uh, I just kept getting all vowels, all vowels. And finally, I just said to her, "I'm having such a problem. I have too many vowels." And she said, "You need to have a vowel movement." Questions about abundance and prosperity? I mean, obviously, we could talk about it for a week. (laughs) But it's important to understand that sometimes people do have a belief that is there in their mind that they don't even know of, like me. I I didn't know until that moment in that contemplation that that's what it is. I made the meaning that if you care about money, that you will be led to hurt the ones you love. You will make money more important than your loved ones. Because I had seen my father do it. And it's funny, every now and then, every so many years, it will come up, that story of that rainy night. And the last time it came up, my brother was laughing about it, and I just thought, isn't it interesting? I'm glad he can laugh about it. I'm glad he can. But it wasn't funny to me. Lesson wasn't meant for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He definitely believes you have to work hard for money, and he works very hard for his money. And he has money. So his heart mind can do it. There, you know, he, he believes it, he demonstrates it, he has it. 
But there's also a thought of, uh, like, I, I once went with my brother and his family to a water park, right, for the day. We all went, you know, to, you know what a water park is, right, where you have all these water rides. Mm-hmm. And um, the rule at the water park was you couldn't bring in your own food because they want to, you know, they want to sell you their food. And so my brother and his wife were stuffing everybody's pockets. Here's some sausage and some cheese and some, you know, it was like every carrying all these things in there. So it wasn't in their bags. And I didn't say anything at the time because, you know, I'm practicing non-judgment. But I thought, but I thought if I could have said something, I would have said, what are you teaching your children? Mm-hmm. What are you teaching your children here? Because right, don't you take to teach them to honor other people's construct? Like, you make films. Would you care if somebody took your work and didn't pay you for it? Or was, you know, like... Like, sometimes in class, people will say, um, Oh, I found where you can get a free download of this audio book, and you don't have to pay for it. And I think, I, like, I don't say anything, really. But, because um, I don't wish someone to think that I'm making them wrong or bad, which they might do. I mean, I follow my guidance, but there's, a, there's also the realization that, well, when I'm selling my audio book, would you be sharing the free download link or would you encourage people to purchase it to support the ministry? You know? Like, why does that person, they made that product, why can't they earn the money for selling it? So I understand. So it's about not judging whatever it is that's going on. But just really looking at what is the energy that you're creating with everything that you're doing. Yeah. So if, if you choose to counsel from this retreat and you choose to, you know, work by love offering in the beginning, which is part of the deal, you get this const- you get the opportunity to say to people who come to you, they may ask, Well, so my client for three hours, we didn't plan three hours. I didn't expect her to honor my hourly rate that I have now. I said, whatever's comfortable. And she dished out three hours worth of my rate. But in that moment, I was affirming, this isn't my source. So um, so that you get to constantly affirm for yourself, even if you're practicing believing it. You're not fully on board. Mm-hmm. But you get to practice saying, Whatever is comfortable for you, that's a constant practice for me. And, yeah, there's just so many times you're affirming it for yourself. And your client's like, what do I do? You know? Can I just ask yeah. you? So you establish a rate, but then you would say to them, whatever's comfortable for you, if that's So with Jennifer's... The way it works for Jennifer, she will advertise you on her site as one of her trainees. And any of the clients that approach you while you're in the training period work on love donation. I also get people outside of Jennifer's network who are now approaching me. Mm-hmm. And 
that's different. So they're not operating under her rules. So I do have a rate that I established, and that's like my kind of, it's just something to, a bar. Mm -hmm. And so this woman wasn't from this network. So I had that and said, this is what I post. And then I'm also practicing honoring my own rate. And actually the website forced me to put a number, and I was like, thank you. <laughs> I would have put vague, no. but I'm practicing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's hard. That part was right hard yeah, for me to think, okay, I'm going to charge this much money, or, you know, I'm going to put that much money. Um, have you ever worked for money? I suppose, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Meaning that you had a salary or an hourly rate? Both situations. Did that feel uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. How come? Well, there was an agreement. You know, this is what you're going to do. And I suggest you have an agreement with your client. Yeah. I do. Mm -hmm. And we'll yeah. talk about some logistics and things like that, as much as, or as little as people would like. You definitely want to have an agreement with your client. Um, I know, and we can talk more about that because we're going to have lunch about in just a minute. Um, I, I once had a client who it was the first time, I think it was the, first, the only time they ever came. And um, they said, you know, at the end of the session, they said, I. You know, I've never done any of this, and I, I never even asked you what your rate was. We never talked about it. And so I don't, I don't know what to pay you. And they pulled the checkbook out. And Spirit told me really clearly, tell them to pay whatever they think it's worth. So I did. And they paid me like triple my rate. Listen. I have to say as the client, I am always uncomfortable with that. But to say, oh... Angel and I had this conversation to say, whatever you feel is right. And I always feel like I'm not doing enough to honor them, like it's not enough. So I, I struggle with that. Well, one thing that I also do recommend is to, to have you say to the client, well, let's take a moment now. Let's take a moment, let's just tune in. And let's just ask the higher self, what, what is the, uh, the, the amount that I'm to pay for this session? And then if you got it that way, would you feel comfortable with what you got? Yeah. yeah. So doing that. And that's the living demonstration of, a whole, of the, all the teachings. Yeah. Because then she did. She stood counting 20s, and I'm like, wow. It's going to, like, take this in, you know. And then she goes, and you don't even have to claim this. And I go, I claim everything yeah. because I'm practicing being in integrity. And yeah. it's not a... You know, we're on an after-school special, and right. I'm like, that's not moral. I'm just like, no, actually, I claim it all because integrity is so important to me. Yes. And I don't even know if the tax thing I'm doing is proper, but for me, in my mind, it's aligning with what feels most in integrity. And But that's the other thing. There are all these moments where she's like, oh, and this can be off the books for you. Perfect. I'm like, no, I don't do that. That's not helpful to me. <laughs> yeah. But this is the constant teaching that you don't realize the impact it will have for people that you demonstrated it. Yeah. So cool. 
So my point of that was, I like that you have a posted rate, right? Because frequently, if I feel the urge to give more, I will, but to, just to know there's a minimum. <laughs> because my mind says, well, maybe their rate's 100 and you're only given 80, you know? <laughs> but that's something for you to look at, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So why don't we stand at holy hands, we'll pray and bless you. My foot's asleep. Okay. Nobody just brought the crane to get me up today? <laughs> <laughs> so we're grateful and thankful to stand in our prosperity and abundance, knowing that it is our divine nature to be prosperous and abundant and to shine it forth for all to see so that all can see the living demonstration of love and wholeness. We are grateful to hold these hands and bless our meal and our break time. We are grateful to know that the food is of the highest vibration. It's healing and nourishing to our body temple. We're grateful and thankful to open our hearts and minds to the, the flow of healing, the flow of love, healing every aspect of our life and our awareness. In gratitude, we bless everyone who brings anything to our table, who had any hand in it, any part of it, blessing the land itself, Mother Earth. In gratitude, we receive it gratefully. We let it be. And so it is. Amen, amen. So let's also just talk about, I don't think we're going to see a movie tonight. We're going to, we're going to do some uh, work together tonight. Um, and uh, um, so I would like to uh, invite you all to do another round of sessions. Um, so um, how does, does a 3 o'clock start time feel good if you give you time to do your session work? And we're meeting in the, in the... Yeah, and then at 3 o'clock... Well, I, I think, you know, unless it's too windy, we could meet out here. I'm going to suggest we set up out here. Unless you'd rather meet down in... Uh, I, I don't have a strong preference. I like to be outside. That is nice, but may depend on the wind and stuff. Does anybody have any thoughts? Oh, or? Outside, too. Yeah, too. Yeah, so we'll just move everything out there right now. Okay, okay. I think it's too windy.